Today, I've got Max Temkin on the line. I know Max because of Dubai Friday, but Max, why do most people know you on the internet? Well, I kind of have two different uh, worlds that I work in. So the first is Democratic campaigns and elections, and I'm probably most well-known for my work on the 2008 uh, Obama campaign, where I was a designer and helped contribute to the Obama brand. But I'm also uh, known as a game designer, probably best known for being the co-creator of the game Cards Against Humanity. Which is a massively successful game that I've got to admit I just haven't played. Maybe I don't have the right friends. See, I always like hearing that because I'm like, oh, there's still some people out there that we can sell this thing to. That's good. Yeah, exactly. Just keep marketing me for a few more years and eventually I'll pick it up. But no, I mean, I wanted to talk to you because... I'm just a fan of your your digital work. I really like your kind of voice and your ability to both be uh, successful in how you communicate to people on a, like a wider level using Twitter, podcasts, and, and all the things you do. But I feel like you don't really sacrifice your voice or your integrity when you talk about stuff. And I and my audience, we're all sort of producing things that we want to be good. And there's always this trap of following into mm-hmm. measuring your success based on followers and based on likes. What drove you to become a public figure on the internet? Well, that's a that's a very interesting question. Yeah. So basically, after I graduated college, I was already working on political campaigns. So I had already, you know, I, I took a, like a leave from college to the Obama campaign while I was still a student. And um, I, I came back home, like moved back home to Chicago to work on this congressional campaign. I already had sort of a a foot in the door doing politics. But the problem was, in terms of being a political, it was an element, I think you see this with a lot of the Trump people that are in the news. You're, you're in Canada, right? I am, yeah. But I still see your news. Yeah, I mean, I, just, I have no concept of how like Canadians or, or people who aren't in the US are like following the ins and outs of the Trump drama. But, you know, I think like one thing that, that I think is true about the Trump drama that you can see is like, on both sides, there's an element of, of like hucksterism to being a political consultant, right? You're always you're always running some sort of scam and you're you're kind of a self promoter. And I, I don't know, I, I never was I never figured that game out. I'm still not very good at it. So as a result, like I, I don't always I don't always have the, the loudest voice on campaigns because I'm uh, I just never figured that thing out. But as like a corollary to that, I never really made any money working on politics. Like I was very bad at like marketing myself as a consultant. And I just sort of worked for candidates that I believed in and, and did what I could to get them elected. And that sounds like how it should work, but it's I now recognize pretty naive. So uh, I was going broke kind of doing that sort of work. And um, I had started working in, in Chicago city politics. I, you know, I love the politics of the city of Chicago, although it's kind of a crucible where a lot of the the best people in the country have like um, honed their skills. And it's like a horrible arena. It's like very, it's like really brutal and corrupt and, and challenging. And I was having a lot of trouble. Like, I mean, I was, I was really broke. Like I was having to decide, do I do laundry or buy groceries today? Level of brokenness. So I uh, started uh, for me, like I basically saw other people who at the time, you know, Tumblr was kind of my community. This was back when, when Tumblr was much cooler and I saw these people who were basically making a living just like making art and coming up with stuff and selling it to their fans. And one thing that I really liked about that was like, it didn't seem like you needed all that many fans to make a living. So there's like one artist who I, um, I'm i now friends with and I, I really greatly admire. His name is uh, Mike Mitchell. He goes by Sir Mitchell online. He's made all these great characters and iconic pieces of art. And I mean, Mike is is Mike famous. I mean, not in the sense of, Kim Kardashian, but he's famous enough in that he has a couple thousand fans at least out there who will like buy his stuff when he makes it. And Mike, I had this unbelievable amount of independence that looked so cool to me when I was sort of toiling away on these campaigns. So like one place where I saw this was like 
Do you ever remember this website called Turntable FM? Yes, I do. Where you'd kind of be your own DJ. Is that the idea? Yeah. So it was like a social website and it was all um, sort of almost animated, right? So you had a little cartoon character and you would like go into this room and there'd be a crowd of people. And if it was your room, you could decide who was allowed to DJ. And the people who were allowed to DJ would literally be like up on a stage and you'd pick a track in your library and you'd play it for the crowd. And the crowd could basically hit like and then they'd start dancing or do nothing. Mm-hmm. And it had a little chat room in it. It sounds like the dumbest thing, but it was very it was super sort of technologically kind of advanced back in the day when this came out. And it was at a time that we didn't have all these other streaming services too, right? They got Yes, it was they were sourcing the music from somewhere weird. It was super novel to have just listen to music online. But the social component was great too. So like what would happen is like I would make a turntable room because I love this thing and I'd have three friends who I knew in real life who would come in and hit the dance button and we'd all play music for each other. But then I would go to Mike Mitchell's room and it was he'd have a hundred people in there. And um he actually <laughs> yeah. got so popular on Turntable FM that he met the creators of the service and wound up drawing one of the little cartoon avatars that you could be. And I was like, this is that's that's all I want is like if there's something cool like just playing music and hanging out with people online that I could have enough people that I'm like, Hey, come listen to music with me. Like he's not selling anything. Like it's just, I don't know if they're just, they like what he's about and they wanted to hang out with him in this virtual space. And I was like, that's, that's what I want. And it, for me, it took a lot of different tries and false starts and playing with all these different technologies and things. And, you know, not everything worked. And some of it, I, I felt, you know, to your point, like it was not really in line with my values or what I was about. And, I mean, I don't know. There's plenty of days where I feel like being doing the social media that I do mostly makes me miserable. But the one thing it's given me, I do have that independence that that is with me of like, um, I don't have to work for anyone else. Like I can kind of make my own stuff. And there's people who follow me on Twitter or, you know, listen to the podcast or whatever. And if I make a game or a poster or whatever it is, they'll throw me a couple bucks and that's enough for me to make a living. Well, aside from how much you value your contribution to society personally, uh, I mean, you say it makes you miserable, but does it actually like, do you think that it's a net positive on how you end up feeling at the end of the day, or does it kind of drag you down or exhaust you? I, I, it's very complicated because it's almost touches every part of my life. Like I'm on Twitter all the time and it makes me deeply unhappy to be on Twitter and it makes me miserable and not, it gives me a very negative impression of people and it's kind of loathe the communities that I'm in at times. But it's also responsible for all these good things, right? It's how I can, it's how if I make something, it's how I can tell people about it. It's interesting because like certainly like the best political organizing that I do nowadays is greatly facilitated by Twitter, but also Twitter is responsible for Donald Trump. So when you ask like, what is there a net benefit? It's like, how am I supposed to weigh those things against each other? Like, I, I don't know. Well, and you also happen to have chosen a category that has a lot greater stakes. I mean, the social circles I interact with online are talking about what new camera came out last week, which is hard to get depressed about because worst case scenario, it's missing some features, whereas you have nuclear holocaust to worry about. Or uh, You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. Like, I think I think politics is important in a unique way because it's the background against uh, which everything else is set, right? There's no art, there's no cameras, there's no tools outside of the context of like, the political and the material. But that being said, if just looking at the issue of the culture, I mean, it's hard for me to like look out at the culture and say like Casey Neistat isn't one of the most influential people in the entire media landscape right now. Like, or, or look at the, the, like the Paul brothers when everyone got mad at them, right? Like that was on CNN, that was on CNN. That's like big news. So to the extent that movies are important or entertainment is important or, you know, books are important. Like, I think, I think it's undeniable that 
this sort of like generation of video creators is culturally important. Well, that's something that I, I look at, Casey, a lot for a point of reference, just as a touchstone of where are the biggest people that think about this in a relatively mature way heading. You know, he, he represents that in a lot of ways. And he created a channel based on entertainment. You know, mm. like a lot of his videos are novel and funny or talking about technology that's going to get a lot of traffic. But then he uses his platform when he has a serious message to talk about it. And I've that's kind of something I envy is that if I can make enough iPhone reviews that bring in a million clicks that once I have something more serious to talk about, there's somebody there to listen. Or one of the most valuable things I've found as a, a bigger audience develops around my content is being able to reach out and get a response. As the way that Twitter operates as somebody that is in the public becomes totally different that you can say things like, hey, does anybody have an answer to this question? And you get you get a bunch of responses. Like that's been one of my favorite things about just developing an audience is that there's somebody to talk back to me and have a conversation with. Like sometimes before that, Twitter feels like a bit of an emptier room. Yeah, there's no question that the value, like why do I click on that Twitter icon on my phone so many times a day? It's because I want to see what people are yelling at me, whether it's good or whether it's <laughs> yeah. good or bad, right? It's so seductive. It's like, oh, what are people saying about me right now? Are they mad at me? Why, what are they mad at me about? Are they, are they, do, how, what do my menchies look like? Do I have a lot of faves? Like, is it, uh, does everyone, does everyone like me? Does everyone agree that I'm, I'm good? That's very seductive. Like, I, I don't have no advice for people about how to get out of that loop, except to say that I think people, um, I think a lot of people want that. You know, I certainly did, right? When I was like, just out of college and I was like looking at, at people who were, who were doing really well on whatever the cool social media of the day was. I certainly wanted that. And I was like, man, someday I hope to get to there. But like, I did, I never, I, this sounds like the lamest bullshit whenever anyone says this to me, but like, there really isn't a, a cost to it that you don't see. And uh, I wish people were, were more thoughtful about, do they actually want that or not? I know, because if you don't have, if you want Twitter followers and you want people to care what you say or whatever, it sounds like, oh, well, easy for you to say you have that. But no, it truly sucks sometimes. Right. And well, I think it also really depends on what that relationship ends up being, like what the pressure is that's coming from an audience that you've built. Okay, point in case, did you see all the people yesterday who got really mad at Casey about the video where he ate the golden wings? Oh, no, I didn't. But I saw it like previously had that with his uh, France video. So kind of the same thing of you're acting too rich and famous for I, I Well, so to be honest, I just saw the outrage about it and I haven't watched the video and I don't, I'm, I mean, I can imagine the critique is that he, there's this, I saw a news story about this, that there's this restaurant in New York that's selling a plate of hot wings, golden covered hot wings for $1,000 a plate. And it's such an indictment. I mean, it's it's it, to me when I hear that story, that story went went massively viral, at least in, here in the U.S. And like to me when I hear that, it's such an indictment of everything wrong with this country, of of the the extreme wealth stratification in this country. That there's people who are just trying to figure out how to stretch their food stamps enough to feed their family and to get nutritious food. And then there's people who are like eating for no reason, eating a thousand dollar plate of wings that are covered in gold that you can't even taste. And then that the media eats it up and it, their strategy totally works. <laughs> right. That's another, I mean, that's another fold to this is that clearly they did it to get attention and it worked. And, you know, maybe that's certainly another sickness in America is that people, 
for that restaurant, right? Like I'm sure when they put that on the menu, they knew, yeah, we're going to get a lot of attention for this and some of it's going to be negative. People are going to be pretty pissed off, but it doesn't, what does it matter, right? We're still getting the attention and that's its own sickness to me. But anyway, Casey went and ate the wings and everyone got mad at him. And I think it's because I, now again, I haven't seen the video, so I'm, I'm going to try not to get mad at Casey about it until I see the video and form an opinion. But like, it's easy to imagine from what I know of the guy that he like went and ate them and made some jokes and it was all sort of fun and goofy, but he sort of did it in a way that didn't really interrogate what this product means and what his involvement in it is. And, you know, if you're broke and you're hot, you're following Casey's advice and you're hustling and you're working hard every day and just trying to, you know, you're part of that sort of Instagram, uh, you know, sweated out like constant grind culture and like, you know, oh, have no have no emotional attachments to the world and have no pleasure or no friendships except for work and just do everything to make a dollar. I can see where you'd look at Casey eating this thousand dollar plate of wings and you'd just be like, come on, man. Well, and I think the danger is that it gives people that kind of goal as well. It becomes part of the mark of like, that's when I've succeeded. And if internet culture becomes rap culture in a way, you know, like that what you plate your rims with is how successful you are as opposed to the depth of your community or the true interactions with it. It can be really hard to keep that straight as you put more stuff out. That like, is the value coming out of how much shit brands are sending me for free or is it out of that I'm actually making friendships or I you know, have people to talk to when something's difficult? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably not enough people think about what kind of life they want to have and then work backwards from that. I mean, for me, some of the factors that were important in my in like deciding what I wanted to do and how I wanted to set up social media and stuff, you know, I was thinking about things like I I really didn't think that I was sort of cut out to have a normal job. Like I have no work ethic. Like I can't wake up in the morning. Oh, I mean, going back to when I was in high school, I always had a fear of having a job, and I had plenty of shitty jobs. Like I worked at Radio Shack and I worked at the airport, and I really I worked hate- at Radio Shack. Yeah, I mean. When, what years were you there? Were you were you there during the cell phone era? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. And, sell, and for me, it was also selling terrible cameras because all the Radio Shack inventory was worse than every other store. Well, it was like, I'm trying to remember what it was. I mean, it must have been like kind of all-in-one sort of point-and-shoot things. Yeah, and they'd have their own sort of uh, knockoff brands that your spiff would be twice the price on the Radio Shack branded stuff, but it worked half as well. Oh my God, the spiffs, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, the funniest thing for me about working at Radio Shack, one, I mean, I was a horrible employee of that store. I want, I mean, man, two funny stories from working at Radio Shack that this is that the spiffs are making me remember. One of them is that on the, we used to have this like very like, uh, it looked like the, the thing from the computer from Lost where you, you had to type the numbers in and that was where you would sort of punch in your sales and it would count and it would give you a readout of all the employees who were working that shift and who had the best sales. And it was like a little contest and you try and get your sales up there. And it, at the end of the day, our manager would round us all up and he'd say, guys, he'd say, congratulations, you know, this month we're on track to make a one, $1.4 million. And everyone would like applaud and cheer. And it was like, the fuck are you people cheering for? Like, we're not going to see any of that. Like, that's not our money. <laughs> one guy will get extra $20 as a bonus for being a top seller or whatever. That was, yeah. exa- I mean, that was God so much damn, of why that, I quit. Yeah. The main thing was um, when I was there was, and then you had the, it, well, the main thing for me was like, you had to get someone to buy three cell phone accessories. That was the big money. It was like, you right. got good spiffs for selling the phone, but boy, if you sold three accessories, like a extra battery, a Bluetooth headset, and like a case, like one of them, like a Velcro the bell, biggest bell spiffs were on the uh, battery warranties so that, you know, oh, once your battery dies, you can come in and I think like exchange them or something, but it cost as much as a new battery and nobody ever did it. 
And so they would, like, same as, uh, I think, Best Buy warranties and all this still today. And the, Okay, and the other funny thing at Radio Shack was, uh, at least at our store, the policy was, um, so if you, for whatever reason, if you had, it, maybe it had to do with price point, but there were some cases where you just needed to throw something out, right? Like, it was a return, and it like wasn't worth it to send it back and RMA it. That was probably mm-hmm. the math, right? If it was under a certain dollar amount, it wasn't worth it to RMA it back to, you know, wherever it went. So what you were supposed to do was take it out back and destroy it. Like, you would right. smash it. And then throw it in the garbage, and that way no one could enjoy it. And mm-hmm. I would always steal it 100% of the time. Whatever it was, I would steal it. That's very forward-thinking of you. Is it still useful to you today, all these— No, uh, it's all gone. I mean, I, the, I, think the, I think the coolest stuff that I got were, like, some tools that people had returned. And then a lot of times, like, the battery would be in backwards, right? But you're like, I don't want to fight with you. It's not, I don't care. I'll just give you another one, right? And so it was, like, a perfectly fine thing. And I was, like— um, like one of them was like a like a voltage tester kit, and I used that for a long time when I was like tinkering with stuff. I fixed it. Well, and there also I think before this was a good there was a good time for Radio Shack when they were selling radio components. I think right, like you could kind of just go in and build sure. your own crap and be be, be yeah, a nerd all the there. Little, and, all the little shits yeah. that was. I mean, oh my god. I mean, I'm too I'm too young for that. But if I was ten years older, I absolutely would have grown up in Radio Shack, buying little shits and building building electronics and stuff because that was the computer culture of of that day. And Radio Shack was where the only place you could do it. Right, there wasn't online ordering. By the time I was working there, if you needed little shits, you'd just go on Amazon or you'd go online and you would order them because you had a uh, better pricing, much better selection. And Yeah, I they- had an older cousin making stuff out of that, and he's the one that made me think Radio Shack was amazing. So then stupidly, when I grew up, I got a job there, and it turns out it was a different company. But. Yeah, oh boy. There was one like demo laptop in the in the store, and the one thing a good thing I did during my time at Radio Shack was I figured out... Using the laptop, I figured out how to like remote into my server and like work on my website. Like, <laughs> like, like, and it always looked, I don't know, maybe it looked like I was working on something. Well, how long did you stay in the whole thing? Like, this, was this more than a, a year? Probably a year. Yeah, that's too long. But I feel like the spiff culture also kind of represents <laughs> what, like my, my bigger issue with where we are now of like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like, am I just sort of hawking? crap or am I contributing value? So I, when, when I'm posting stuff, a lot of the time I, I can get caught up in a bad news day where everybody else in the world is tweeting about the latest travesty, you know, a shooting that is legitimately depressing. And then here I am and I'm like, well, I am as disappointed as everybody else that this horrible thing has happened again, but uh, I'm just going to be posting about my Silly little nonsense, and I don't know. I like this is this is just my world of that. Yeah. Um, obviously, the commercialization of things I'm posting out about is distracting and maybe not setting the most important priorities for me. But I try to find a balance with it where I know that when I'm following people that are just posting about gear or I don't know sites like Uncrate, where it's just sort of gear porn to get you excited about stuff that you may or may not buy, or if you do buy it, you're never going to use it. And, you know, like, is that who I want to be? And is that who I want my community to be in the in the long run? I, like, you seem to be into those types of products, whether or not you talk about them online. Like, wh- what do you follow? Like, what do you like that isn't politics? Now, I mean, nowadays, um, I'm mo- <laughs> like most of my free time is devoted to reading about politics and following the news and thinking about things I can do. You know, I'm working on a number of campaigns and things like that. So it does occupy an enormous amount of my time. But I, I make time to play games like uh, there's a mobile game that I really like called Clash Royale. Um, so I think that, you know, I'll probably spend 20 minutes a day playing Clash Royale. 
and I'll keep up with, you know, whatever dumb prestige TV people are watching and, um, you know, try and keep up with, with comedies that are on the air and stuff like that. I try and read a lot, although lately, you know, honestly, since Trump's been elected, I've had a, I've had a really hard time reading fiction. Like it just feels mm-hmm. somehow like I'm not doing any, like, I don't know. I, 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 it's not rational. I just feel like I'm somehow wasting my time if I read fiction. So I'm reading a lot of nonfiction and history and uh, books about like uh, World War II and Nazis and things like that. So that's, that's comforting. Well, yeah, my version of that is I, I like I've started to completely replace music with podcasts and Sometimes I notice that sort of sucking my soul away when a really great song comes on and there's, um, you know, like music can make me cry. Music can really change the way blood's flowing through me. But I really stopped listening to it much because I have this feeling that I, I'm, I'm wasting time or I'm not learning enough because if I have a podcast on, I'm injecting, you know, I've got the IV drip of info into my brain, whether or not I'm absorbing anything. Yeah, you know, I with with respect to your your question of like, does it feel trivial to be doing, you know, talking about cameras or making art or whatever in, in this sort of political age? Like, I definitely struggle with that, you know, like you said, on days when there's shootings. So I have two things for you on that. I have one, I have a piece of very specific advice of like how to handle it that from a PR perspective that that I can, I'm happy to share some some advice that I follow myself. Please, yeah. But also I have a I have a story I can tell you from from my friend uh, Peter Sagel, who's a radio host who has a great anecdote about this that I think about all the time. So first my piece of practical advice is if there's a shooting or something, I think that there's two things. I think that that people feel like somehow they need to issue their statement on it, right? So like right. what's the you know, if you're uh, I hate to keep picking on Casey, but if you're like Casey nice at you, right? You're like what's what's the Casey's like response to the shooting or whatever. And I just want to say, like, you you don't actually need to issue a response. Like, most people don't need to say anything. If you were affected by it in some way, if you knew someone, if you are, I don't know, I mean, if you, if you have a program that you want to do to help, I think that those are fine things to talk about. But for the most part, it's, it's, I, I just want to remind people that it is a valid strategy to not not say anything in times of tragedy. Like you don't have to make issue a press release, right? No, yeah. but not most people are not sitting there going, you know, uh, what 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 is Tyler's statement on on this tra- on this tragedy, right? It, it's okay. Yeah. I I in fact feel like there's a certain there's something really sweaty and self-centered about people who have to issue a little statement after a tragedy, and I really hate it. You know, oh, my my thoughts and prayers are with these people. It's like you know maybe. That, that it's like no one's looking at your your Twitter where you normally post you know poop jokes for that. So I, I most of the time, unless it sort of affects me, I usually just take the path of of saying nothing. Maybe if I see something really powerful or a news story or something, maybe I'll retweet that just to be like for followers. There are I have plenty of followers who like consume news because I post it, which is a little bit of a weird responsibility. But I try and like if there's like a good a really nice like op-ed about uh, shootings or something in the, in the days following, I'll retweet it because I want people to see it. But yeah, that's my advice for most people is don't respond to it. Certainly don't incorporate it into your advertising. Like it's always, always, always wrong to do like the Pringles Corporation uh, uh, pledges to always remember 9-11 and uh, celebrate uh, our first responders with 20% off. That's always, always, always the yeah, wrong yeah. response, right? I've even found it strange to see how much, uh, at this point, Tim Cook seems to need to respond to everything that happens, mm-hmm. like in, in the way that he would be a politician or, you know, a world well, leader. Well, Tim, Tim Cook is a important public figure in that Apple is 
both the, I don't know if this is true anymore, but they were recently the largest. They're certainly one of the largest companies in the world, maybe the largest. And Tim Cook is a highly, highly, highly visible CEO. Like he's probably the CEO that like almost the most living people could name, I would say. Right. Right. So he is a public figure, even though he's not a politician, it would be conspicuous. He is so famous it, that it would be and there. And Apple is so closely scrutinized that it would actually be conspicuous if Tim Cook said nothing. People would say, right. why didn't Tim Cook say anything for yeah. you and I or or even someone who's a famous YouTuber? It would not be conspicuous if they didn't say anything. Right. No one is saying, where's the state? Where's Max's statement on the mail bombings in Austin? Right. It can yeah. be assumed that I'm against it. Yeah, no, I mean, I can I, I do find that comforting because it's my followers probably don't have spreadsheets where they're tracking everyone they follow and confirming who and who didn't uh, say the right things. And then, I mean, of course, like also the biggest risk is if you happen to, you you don't really put that much thought into it and it comes off as... Right, it's self-promotional or insincere. I mean, there's a lot of of ways for that to go wrong. And then, you know, I also have this story. um, uh, It's a couple of paragraphs uh, from uh, from my friend Peter Sagal that I can can relate about this topic. So this is a story, um, Peter Sagal is the host host of uh, um, this uh, show on NPR called Wait, 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 Don't Tell Me. And uh, this is a story he tells. So he says, this is a story that happened to a friend of mine, Morgan Jenis. When she told me this story, she was a dramaturge. That's someone who, if you don't know, who's sort of like an editor of plays, somebody who works with playwrights to interpret plays. The story is that when Morgan was a young woman living in New York City, she had trouble finding herself and she was very uncertain of herself. And for whatever reason, she'd become obsessed with Mother Teresa. This was around 1980 and Mother Teresa was the epitome of human beings, the best kind of human there was. And so Morgan wanted to be so much, wanted to be like or with Mother Teresa. One day, Morgan read in the paper that Mother Teresa was coming to New York City to visit the UN to testify about something or another. And Morgan was such a Mother Teresa fan that she found out what hotel Mother Teresa was staying at, and she stalked Mother Teresa. So she's waiting there at the curb outside of her hotel, and a car pulls up, and Mother Teresa gets out. He says uh, there was this little row of penguin-like nuns that got out before her. And then finally, here comes Mother Teresa. And Morgan runs up to Mother Teresa, who was an old woman at that time, and says, oh, Mother Teresa, I'm so glad to meet you. Mother Teresa, the work you do is so wonderful. Mother Teresa was very kind and took her hand and listens to her. And Morgan says, you know, the work you do is so important, and I just want to come to Calcutta and do that work with you. Mother Teresa kind of shakes her head and says, no, 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 you can't do this kind of work because you think it's important. You do this kind of work because you so love the poor people of Calcutta that you can't be away from them. That's when you come and do this work. And Morgan kind of realized that she had been busted a little bit in a nice way. And she nods in understanding. And after a moment, Mother Teresa asks her, well, what do you do? And Morgan says, well, what I do is important. What I do is I work in a theater and I just help put on plays. And Mother Teresa says, there are so many different kinds of famine in this world. In my country, there's a famine of the body. And in this country, there's a famine of the spirit. Stay here and feed your people. So I think about that story all the time when it when it things seem really dark or really hopeless, and it's like, man, am I really gonna like futz around with a camera today or make some try and write some jokes or you know whatever dumb thing I'm doing, you know, record the podcast or whatever? And it's like the it, things are so dark and it just feels so small and so hopeless. I try, I just, try, I think about that story all the time, right? That it is helping, you know, stay here and feed your people. Someone's got to do it. Well, it definitely makes me feel better about the, the time I'm wasting online. So thanks for that, Max. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Do I get to ask you, are we out of time? Can I ask you, I have questions. No, to no, ask, no, ask me a question. Okay. What, tell me, okay. Can I, I just want to ask you about camera advice. Please. Yeah. That's my favorite thing to give. I feel like I've got you here. Yeah. So, okay. So I 
am almost a lifetime Nikon guy. And why? I don't know. My mom had Nikon lenses when I was growing up. So I bought a Nikon camera so I could use her lenses. No thoughtfulness behind the other than that. So I look, so my comfort is like shooting on like Nikon DSLRs. Like that's just always what I've done. Right. Recently at the office, you know, Alex and I run all of the film stuff for cards. We film, we do tons of video and, you know, we've been through all these different options. You know, we, we have, um, I got really into the, um, a seven S two. I thought that maybe that would be like the camera that we would shoot everything on. And for me, the, the main thing that kills me about it is like the lenses just aren't there yet. And then, um, now the latest camera I've been playing with is the Canon, it's a 60 Mark two. Okay. Sounds right. Yeah. And I'm very, very, very into this Canon. I think it's my favorite camera that I've used in a long time. But now they have the A the A7 III is out. Uh, that is what, that's what I just bought. So I have a lot, I, I can say a lot about it. That's why I'm <laughs> asking you about it. And so we're kind of at this point where we're, we just sold some of our... We were using studio cameras for a while, like C100s. And mm-hmm. now I think we're going back to DSLRs just because like the I like the look of DSLR better. Like the color profile is way better. Like, I don't know. It's just... It's a better look for me in every way. I, I just right. I'm more comfortable shooting with it. What do we buy for cards? What do we buy? This is the worst year to be a person giving camera advice because everything is not normal uh, because of Sony. So Sony is coming up with these amazingly powerful cameras that have they're just leapfrogging the features of Canon and, and especially Nikon. I mean, Nikon I'm worried about in the long run uh, because they're just so much smaller of a company that it yeah. might be really difficult for them to compete in the long run. But Sony's just pumping it out, all these amazing cameras, but the usability on them is still pretty terrible. So w- what I've been saying about the a7 III is all of a sudden it's it's kind of the camera that most people starting out, if you're at all budget sensitive, which we all are, you should probably buy that one because it's, it's like $2,000, you know, it's half the price of a good Canon with more features and the unfortunate things, so all these people are going to be buying it, but it's awful to use. So the new normal is going to be confusing menus and you have to manually customize all the buttons on it, just out of the box. Like it really, is, I don't know who it's meant for, like the options that they pre-program stuff to be just are the wrong choices. So that means that you're also customizing stuff and when you hand it over to somebody else, they don't know how to use that camera. So in a studio setting, like, uh, you know, where if you've got a lot of different people that are all using the same camera, every Sony often ends up being set up differently. Whereas a Canon, you you can't even program it. It just works the way that it works. And then you live with it. So if you go and pick up somebody else's 60 or 5D or whatever, it's going to work the way that yours at home does. That's like a real challenge about the Sonys. Uh, it, the image quality is awesome, but... Where are we on... So in terms of film, you know, almost, uh, I would say like a combination of the fact that we... I mean, neither of us are like great camera people. You know, we're, we're sort of just making do with the, the skills that we have. And the fact that we do a lot of stuff like super documentary style, like run and gun, like we're like walking around a convention with the camera or trying to just try, you know, trying to get something really quickly. Those Canon lenses with the auto stabilization and the the really quick autofocus are killer. Like I'm getting, I'm taking right. better video on that 6D than almost any camera I've ever used. Like it's, it just focuses so fast. The focus is still better on the Canons. That's where Canon does keep winning. It's both more intelligent, like about recognizing what's a person and what should I be tracking in this scene versus Sony. Sony's is, is fine. It's it's good. But um, 
Canon does have the lead there. And then also Canon... So the lenses you have, you already own a bunch of stabilized Canon lenses. Because mm-hmm. um, a huge advantage for Sony's is... Yeah, but I'd go buy whatever. I'll go buy whatever right, you right. tell me to buy. With the Sony, no matter what lens you have, it's always stabilized because the sensor is. So for me, I a lot of my lenses, like especially if you want some blurry backgrounds. Uh, Wait, is that true on the A7S2 as well? Yes, A7S2, A7R2. That's why there's not a lot of auto stabilization lenses in the Sony ecosystem because it's camera, it's camera side. Exactly. So you just don't need to think about it anymore. So now, when I go back to my Canon for video shooting, everything feels like messy. I get used to just hand holding it with no support, and it being usable and looking okay. And that's just not the case on a Canon. Um, I find even the lens stabilization just isn't as strong on a Canon. Uh, like it stabilizes less than the Sony's. Damn. Okay. And then now what about if you're doing, um, you know, vlogging stuff or just in general, like I, I, the flip around screen on the 60 is like, I had no idea how valuable I would find that until I had it. And now I don't know that I could go back to a camera without that. If you're used to it, you may not want to go back. I mean, I, I never got used to it and I started vlogging right away. And also, wait, I'm thinking, is it maybe the like the 80D or something? I think the 60 is not a flip out screen. I have to peel, let me like peel the tape off of this thing because I taped over all the logos and everything. No, it's the 60 Mark II. Oh, okay. yeah, it's a full, it's a full frame and it's got the, the whole flippy screen. It's a, it's a yeah, yeah. great camera. It's pretty small too and the battery lasts forever. Like, I fucking love this thing. I can't believe I've waited so long to like get into Canon cameras. They're they're for film. They're amazing. The things that prevent me from like so I, the way I use mine is my Canon is my stills camera and my Sony is my video camera. And I stick to the Sony. One big reason is the color profiles that it has good flat profiles, which just give you way more dynamic range. So Canon straight out of camera. If you don't do any editing, which it sounds like you're not, you're not going to be adjusting your colors in post, right? You just want them to look nice. Canon is better for that. Sony is way better if you're going to be editing them. Like if you're going to heavily modify the colors after, you can you can push it further. What's your workflow for? So that's another thing. Is like I don't really have a quick workflow for doing color correction. I mean, I can do like auto correction and final cut, but I don't think that's that. Like I can throw a lot on the footage and then do like auto correction and final cut, but like otherwise like pretty much what I'll do is run if I'm really taking the time, I will run the film through uh, Lightroom. Well, yeah, no, it sounds. It's, I mean, it sounds like you're already tapping into the the best quick strategies. Like that's the biggest challenge is the quickness. It's so much yeah. work, and you have to sit there and wait for it to render. Like it's like you know 2002. And you said you said Final Cut, not Premiere, right? I don't know how to use Premiere. Okay, yeah, good. No, that's good because uh, Final Cut will do a better job of rendering those LUTs. So what I do is I I edit my whole video, like putting everything into place, and then I create an adjustment layer, and now. Do you, does that word mean anything to you? Well, I mean, I can imagine that it's like a, it's basically like a Photoshop like a layer that's a, the top layer that adjusts all the footage beneath it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's like a null layer that that it is nothing. And so, so you're, you use Premiere? No, no, no. So this this is how I do things in Final Cut. But I was on Premiere until recently, and I took this strategy from Premiere because in Premiere it's native, like it's mm-hmm. it's something that you more intuitively always do, like Photoshop. So you're you moved from Premiere, and now you're on Final Cut. Yeah, because of the speed. Okay, bro, oh my God, it's so fast, so fast. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, I edited a lot of 4K on a 13 inch laptop, and those don't have uh, dedicated video cards, so I just kind of had to. It was too slow to keep using Premiere. Okay. Now, how are you coping? Do you use the sort of 
I don't know what they call it, but the like one timeline feature, you know, where you just you're supposed to sort of put your clips in in sequence. Oh, um, in Final Cut, you know no. what I'm talking about? No, I just make a mess of everything. Like, no, I don't. Partly, I don't know what you're talking about. So, but. so the way you're supposed to use Final Cut Pro now mm-hmm. is that you there's like the main timeline or whatever, right? And you like right. put your clips in in a, in line, and then when you like delete one, everything snaps to back to place. Oh, right. Just like the magnetic timeline. Is that the, I don't the... know, but it's like not, they don't even call it a timeline. It's like not a timeline. It's like a sequence or something like that. So it's like, well, you're, you're, you're sort of stuck. Like if you want to go into Final Cut land, you're just sort of stuck living with their weird uh-huh. conceptualization of, of uh-huh. what it all means. But, but let me tell you what I've done to defeat it. Oh. So you fill that main timeline thing with, with just an empty frame. <laughs> you fill it with black. Right. And then your video, right, right. you have layers on top of it. Then you just make a normal timeline like any other editing program. You know, or you could just switch to Premiere. <laughs> but okay, yeah, I get it. Premiere is one more Adobe program where the goddamn keyboard shortcuts don't mean the same thing as the other Adobe programs. So I'm going to have to learn everything again. That's true. So I want to still finish my, my strategy yeah, for grading all this stuff. So yeah, if you throw an adjustment layer on everything... Slap a beautiful LUT on it. I mean, maybe you already have some LUTs that you like sitting around. Is that is that something you have? Just like uh, camera correction. Okay, so I would find one that looks like your Lightroom filters. Okay. There's there's a pack I like called Impulse, spelled I am. I have to type it as I M P U L Z, and uh, those are I don't know. They're just kind of pretty, like film emulation. They look like VSCO or whatever. And cool. that, that gives you your like look, right? Your, your, your punchiness. You can, you know, add a bit of contrast or whatever, but this is like, this is giving you basically like a film stock for everything. And then on each individual clip, you do your corrections, right? So, okay, this one's way too cool. This one's too warm. You sort of neutralize it and make it look not broken. But the adjustment layer is where all of the, the beauty comes in or the, like, the best way to think of it is like, that is your film stock in the film days, right? And then Shot by shot, you make some adjustments, but overall, you only apply the look in one place. I find that really helpful for both being able to add a bit of beauty to it, but then also do it quickly because it has to be done fast. Cool. This seems, I'm just looking at this Impulse website. This seems kind of like what I'm looking for, actually, because it's, uh, yeah, it, no, they have, it's basically they have letting me do some of the stuff I'm doing in Lightroom, but without bringing the footage back and forth. And then you have to, like, you really should skip the Lightroom step because also Lightroom has like no controls over compression or anything. And I've, I've seen some of that look bad. I do everything in like the, in the raw format and then it takes fucking forever. And then you have to resync all your audio. It's a mess. Yeah. Definitely keep it all inside of your editor if possible. And yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, LUTs just took longer to look good because I, I think video has been such a smaller community. And the idea of a LUT even is only entering mainstream now. People have not been used to that word. It's, it's much harder than just saying, look, we've got presets, but you have to go figure out how to use all these LUT plugins first. Um, so in photography, presets picked up a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you using VSCO in Lightroom? Yeah. Yeah, because they just made it easy and everybody could understand how to install them basically whereas understanding how to install LUT packages was a huge pain but I think that LUTs are basically going to take over now Adobe is supporting LUTs as part of their color profiles so like probably the next round of say VSCO presets will incorporate them so LUTs will be a a part of that and I think that's going to become how we adjust everything moving forward so kind of getting used to them is going to pay off in the long run boy that's my uh that's the dream right there is um Getting all my uh, those uh, VSCO or uh, like the uh, Visco filters in uh, right in uh, Final Cut. 
Man, that, that yeah, would be awesome. I, I'm sure they're aiming for it. I I think they were just kind of waiting for the software to to make it easy enough. But now Final Cut has made that editing way easier. But well, another thing in terms of your uh, shopping for cameras, what are you guys actually producing and putting out? I haven't seen a lot of videos from your end. Uh, mainly like almost every time we go to a convention, we shoot a video and it gets shown. We do these huge panels and in like, you know, the big uh, convention theaters. And we usually open the panel with a video that we like shoot and produce like that day at the convention. So it's like, oh, it's I basically see. like wake up and just start working. And then you like export like two seconds before you go on stage. And that's the amount of time you have. Um, so we're looking for, that's why that like quick, quick workflow and like real forgiving lenses and everything is like, we're always looking for right. stuff like that. But um, if I don't you're know, doing I mean, all this stuff, I would, I'd love to see yeah. you as a YouTube personality. I think. I mean, if you already Man, know been, how to shoot and edit it, it'd be this great. Is my other, this is my, one of my other dilemmas of like, it's very seductive. Like I love, I, I've been doing a little bit of like blogging style videos. So like I have some stuff on my YouTube channel. Like I did this, like we had a debate at our office recently and I did like a backstage kind of a thing at the debate. But, you know, man, it's really hard. Like I am, so first of all, what I like about it is I love editing and this is just a real thing to edit, right? Like it feels so, it's been so long since I've edited a lot of video. And it's so much fun to edit video, and I love having a thing to make. Like it's just fun, and yeah. I forgot how much fun it was and how much I love it. Um, so that's that's number one. Number two, though, is the problems with it are like number one. I don't really like talking to the camera. I feel like an idiot when I talk into the camera. And right. then the other thing is like I feel like it's very hard for me to figure out how to do a vlog and not rip off Casey Neistat or other YouTubers that I watch. <laughs> yeah, like well, I think you can start just by ripping them off. I know, a but bit it just feels then, uh, so lame. Like I just don't want. Like I see myself doing it, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. Your your thing of talking to camera though, I I've been making notes for myself about how to make videos more like podcasting because mm -hmm. a huge downside to me for for videos, I'm sitting there talking to myself. And I have a really hard time being as interesting when I don't have somebody to bounce ideas off of, or you know, when it's just me, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm I'm worse, uh, and it takes me longer and more takes. And uh, I, I think also when you edit, you're less forgiving of mistakes. So when you're speaking like this, like conversationally, and I um and ah and stutter, it comes off better than if you're talking to camera, where you're supposed to be in presentation mode and, and nail it, right? So that, that I've actually had that same struggle, even though like m most of people that watch me are, are, are on YouTube, I find it a lot harder than than podcasting. So I'm trying to like, how do I make videos in the ways that I podcast where I can bring other people into it more, I can make it feel more natural and, and, and more real. And I don't know, it's like a challenge I'm facing, but my recommendation is to just just do it as the, as the learning process. Like it's kind of the only way I've been able to advance on it is just keep putting stuff out very good advice cool well thank you so much for uh, giving me a bit of your time max I, I really appreciate it and i look forward to seeing more of you on the internet thanks for having me on this was fun <laughs>